we should maybe be a little non-traditional and not worry too much about what the world thinks and say, this is something that I think I'm uniquely equipped to do and I want to give it a period of time to do. And I, you know, that was something that I think went really well. And I would encourage others, if you feel that tug, don't worry about the linear model that we are raised within. Thank you for tuning in to Say Hi to the Future's Leadership Forum, a space where you will hear perspectives from global industry executives on human ingenuity, how they catalyze it to unlock value and realize the organization's true potential. We will keep it real. You will hear what's worked well and learnings from instances where things could have worked better. I'm your host, Saki Buddy, partner at Spiderworks and explorer Say Hi to the Future, the fast-growing community highlighting the human side of ingenuity. So our guest today is Emily Chang. Emily is currently the CEO of Wonderman Thompson West. Emily, like many of us, started her career at PG, where she rose through the ranks spanning the globe at breakneck speed. Um, then over to Apple, Intercontinental Hotel, Starbucks, McCann, and now at Wonderman. As if that wasn't accomplishment on its own, Emily is also a best-selling author shedding light and social legacy on the board of uh, SOS Children's Village and an adjunct prof at NYU. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me, Sakeem. We are honored to have you with us, Emily. Um, Emily, you know what? I just did that introduction on my own, but let's let our listeners hear in your voice how you would introduce yourself. And as you do, Emily, please do reinforce and frankly demystify the truths and myths stemming from having a global career. Sure. Well, you covered the the big points. So I think maybe I will take a step back because I know our theme is about ingenuity. Yeah. Yes, it is. I was thinking about ingenuity and how I might define it. And I think um, we can be we can exercise ingenuity when it comes to how we think about crafting our careers. How so? Curiosity sure. to me is a key underpinning of ingenuity, which is asking why is this the case or what is possible or what has to be true. And I think in my career, I have taken some unexpected moves, some lateral moves, because my goal wasn't a specific pinnacle or a specific title or a pay. Rather, I was curious. I was interested to learn more about different industries. I, I remember when Intercontinental Hotels Group reached out to me. I didn't know anything about hotels. I, it never even crossed my mind to go work in a hospitality group. And I have to tell you, that was one of my favorite jobs when I was recruited by Starbucks. Of course, it's a wonderful brand, but to go from a portfolio of nine with such a big team of over 5,000 to CMO of Starbucks is in many ways a smaller role. But it was my curiosity to understand and kind of peek under the hood of the CRM, which I thought was best in class globally, that really drew me. So. I think my career in a nutshell comes from being curious and being open to experiences and opportunities that maybe don't look uh, linear or vertical, but can broaden and expand my horizons and take me in ways that I would never have expected to go. That's a, that's a great way of, of putting it and talk about ingenuity as part of your of, of thinking about your career and curiosity it is. And you know what? While you're being humble enough to say uh, whether it went vertical, you have gone fairly vertical in your career, and that's that success has been absolutely fantastic to watch. You know, it's it's uh, it's great 
Emily, that you've already preempted the conversation on on ingenuity. Um, you know, our paths have crossed uh, while you were at Procter. While that run was brief, you did leave a, a very significant mark on me. Um, building on that, and then I'll you know I'll get into exactly what made me say that. Building on that, I'd love to get your leadership take on ingenuity. And more important, the human side of ingenuity as it relates to you, your organization's success. Emily, what's your take? When has it worked well? When has it not? What have you learned along the way? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, I always like to go back to the root of the word. And what does that actually mean? Because, you know, especially today, we talk so much about certain things that I almost feel like we dilute their fundamental meaning. So it's important for me to go back to what does that actually mean? So to me, as I was thinking about this uh, time with you, I was defining ingenuity as this combination of originality, creativity, and problem solving. I think, um, you know, in the world that I'm in now, Wonderman Thompson, creativity for creativity's sake or to win a creative award is one thing. Creativity that is creating something original and solving a problem is something that resonates and lasts. So for me, ingenuity is identifying something that doesn't exist, but should. And I think that can come to light in many ways. It can come to light in actual creative forums where we do work that, you know, one, one, one that comes to mind, okay, on the job before we get into the other elements that's really interesting is, you know, with Sherwin-Williams, there is this insight that people like to find the perfect wall color and it's like this impossibility. There are 150 shades of white, you know, but ultimately our affinity to color stems from memories and emotions. So there was an AI tool that was designed where you can just speak and say, hey, look at that photo from Hawaii, remember that sunset? Put that on the wall and see how that looks. These types of ways of being ingenious and pulling together creativity, curiosity, courage, and technology is a great way to see how um, ingenuity can ingenuity can manifest. But I also think there are other ways to your questions that keep in terms of what works and what doesn't work when it comes to our day job, which is taking care of people. So for instance, I'll tell you one thing that worked really well, and it wasn't because I was ingenious. I stumbled upon something that really kind of took off. When I was at McCann, every time we had a win, I would give a gift of champagne to the team and we would pop the champagne and drink it together. I started very early on to write on the box, hey, congrats on the North Face, congrats on whatever the brand, Alibaba, and I would sign it. What I hadn't realized is this not only shows what brands we won, but it created a sense of friendly competition between teams and it was a form of recognition. Do you know what happened is the team started to collect the boxes and build walls, <laughs> literally <laughs> by its walls. And that's ingenious. I wasn't ingenious, but the teams adopted this and it became a thing in the McCann office. I think what worked about that was maybe equally something that didn't work that well that I didn't intentionally try to create. And, and that was when I was also at McCann. You know, every year around um, Chinese New Year, we give a red envelope and it normally has some cash. And we were thinking, wouldn't it be nice in addition to cash if we created a surprise and delight? So we married creativity and branding and recognition and created these little red string bracelets that had like hand branding with the year of the animal and little um, beads, sort of Pandora style to indicate how many years of service you were able to share. What a cool idea. Everybody can wear the bracelets. It's a great so giant bracelet. I thought so too. And I'll say in the beginning, people were delighted to open their red envelopes, but it didn't take off. And 
I think there are a couple of reasons for it. If we think about Champagne Wall versus Bracelet, Champagne Wall is immediate, it's quick, and it builds regularly over time. This bracelet, big idea, requires a fair investment, but it's a yearly thing, you know, and people don't want to wear the same thing year on year. And it also requires that the next year you build upon it. And then you start asking these questions. Do I have a second bracelet? Do I add another bead to the existing bracelet? So it's almost like we over-engineered. So something that's truly landing in the bucket of ingenuity to me is it's so easy to do. It's seamless. It's so visceral that everybody immediately understands it. And it just takes off on its own. You know, it's it's uh, there's so much you've said in here that I'd love to unpack, but there are a couple of thoughts in here where, which you mentioned. So well, one of them, you know, one of them is this whole concept that you mentioned, which is organizing around something uh, that's not there but should, right? Mm. I, I think that is what a cool way of saying something. Um, the other thing you just mentioned about was something that catches on, something that's immediate. And the word that we generally use uh, in our vernacular is scrappy, right? What can be scrappy? Because scrappy can also, by the way, the moment you find that it's not working, you can scrap it and start something else. But if you over-engineer, then you've invested so much time, effort, organizational resources and everything, then it's almost like we have to make this work, whether or not it does, right? And And I, I do think in how you've been speaking about ingenuity, we do something similar. So, you know, we call uh, human ingenuity, the human side of ingenuity is clever, inventive, and original thinking. And the reason why we go clever, inventive, and original, uh, because there's an element of each of those that actually makes it ingenious. And then when we are describing the values for human ingenuity, it's about savage curiosity, passion, and the audacity to make a change. So it's actually taking some action on it. Um, so yeah, a lot of the words that you use are, are very similar to what we have over here. Um, and, and so some of these examples that you shared, uh, whether that be at McCann or now at Wenderman, I really like the, the whole idea around, hey, that AI could actually capture mm. a memory mm-hmm. and, and transpose that onto uh, okay. what, what it could be, right? Um, so examples like that, I mean, are, are now how does it, how do you get people within your team mm-hmm. to think this way so that you can have such better outcomes? Um, so one is obviously how you do it, but then how do you make sure that the team around you is also getting to more of this? Well, there's the African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, you go together, right? I think there is, um, think about how a fire is built. There has to be the spark. You take the flint and you're working really hard to get the spark, right? Individually, perhaps you can make the spark, but the spark can very easily die down and quickly be an ember. Or you can blow on that spark, you can add fuel, and then together you can create a massive bonfire. I think there's a lot of power to not thinking about the individual accomplishment and really think about how together we can create more. And and I think that's something that we often say, Sakib, and not something we often do because human nature yearns to be recognized. Human nature imagines being on stage, winning awards, being you know called out for our own ingenuity. The thing I think it takes a degree of maturity and age perhaps to realize is that will come 
when you go at it together. So I think in many ways, it's about engaging others. It's about socializing ideas. It may feel slow, but what you're doing is fanning the flames. And then together, mm-hmm. if five kind of mouths come at that um, spark and we all blow, imagine the flame that can suddenly ignite. You know, I think about a very practical business issue at Intercontinental Hotels Group. We had an issue with our contracts. So if you think about a hotel, it has hundreds of rooms. And what you can do is you can fill the rooms individually when, for instance, Saqib has a vacation with his family and books one room for four days. You can also book blocks of rooms, business to business. So I sell a number of rooms to IBM and so they can use it for all of their big meetings and conventions. You can also sell with a third party uh, group like an online travel agency. I can sell a big block of rooms to booking.com. And that is now their block of rooms to sell. What we are finding is when you look at these different segments, the biggest blocks were being sold at the lowest price, which makes sense, but perhaps lower than optimal. That is a very um, dry business issue, but one that is worth millions and millions of dollars. Sure. Identifying it is the catalyst, but one person cannot make that kind of a shift in the business. So really taking a moment, engaging others, helping them understand why we think there's an opportunity here. And importantly, for people who've been here for years, recognizing the great work and why we did what we did versus looking on the past and saying, well, that was dumb. We have a better way. Engaging, enrolling, socializing can help us go farther together. And frankly, that was the number one business breakthrough that we were able to drive when I was in the CCO role. I think it's about engaging, socializing, um, finding those in the moment ways that we can bring people together against a common goal. But now you've got me all curious. So I got the problem. How'd you guys go about it? Well, I think the first thing is to make sure it's not a commercial driven objective. It has to be operations and commercial hand in hand. So I had a great operations partner who was the COO and he kind of um, grew up in hospitality. So he had so much more background and context on how we get to where we get and historically why we sold these big blocks of rooms. And it was really helpful perspective because, you know, I come in fresh to the industry. We were such a good pairing credit to our boss, Kenneth, for putting us together. And when you look at the new what's possible in today's world, where especially in China, the booking.coms of the world were purchased by the Googles of the world, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we call them BAT by Duali Baba Tencent had purchased most of the online travel companies. So what happens is where you think you're segmenting pricing, it's actually becoming visible to a broader audience. So it's not so segmented and, and deep discounted prices are not in fact opaque. So making sure operations understands this is really impacting our bottom line and there are ways we can work together to increase our revenue, our RGI, our impact. And and if operations is on board, then we start socializing with all the hotel owners. And then slowly as we engage and, and grow traction, what we need is a couple of wins, a couple of case studies. And that's not very different than any industry anywhere. If you have an idea, you've got to prove it out. It's a little bit of the catch-22 behind ingenuity, right? You can't really demonstrate until you prove it, but you can't really prove it until you have an opportunity to demonstrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, one of the key is when we talk about in the moment, it's finding finding those quick wins. And if you can then package that quick win, if that gives you data and it becomes a, a credibility or a proof point for you, then you get that snowball rolling. You know, Emily, it's 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 uh, it's funny. So every time that we go into uh, a client and, and um, uh, there's this obviously there's a podcast, we also have our city engagements. Um, but when we have clients 
engagements around ingenuity. That's exactly how we speak about it, which is, mm. um, you know, it's it's almost like make a case based on data, which is the catalyst and the insight that you came up with. Go ahead and experiment it a bit. Come back and tweak, adjust, right? And then keep doing that. And that in itself is a continuous process. So ingenuity in how we preach it is is less about an event and more of a of a process and a yeah. journey that you get on. And it's 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 over a fairly long mm-hmm. period of time and it never ends. If you if you really look at ingenuity properly, there's no end to ingenuity. I think it's really counterintuitive, isn't it? I, I just yeah, uh, yeah. blog post that I think will go out in a month or so, which is the counterintuitive idea of crafting routine and how it enables you to live with more spontaneity and joy. It's it's a similar theme to what you're talking about here, Sakib. I think if you have your foundation set and if you approach things with a longer term view, you then cadence your energy, you cadence your approach to things, and it allows you to flex more without putting yourself on a roller coaster ride. And so as you do that, and in your experience, you've done that, what are some of the rubrics or guardrails that you put in order to stay the course while still adjusting for whatever tweaks and, and, and crannies that you might have had to do along the way? So um, any any tips or tricks that you could you could share with us uh, for our listeners and ourselves? Well, we're always trying to find that balance, right, between too much structure and too much freedom. And I think it, it's a little bit of a healthy tension in our day-to-day work and the way that we lead and the way the organization can flourish. On one hand, you need something that is a little bit of a framework. On the other hand, you need freedom within that framework. And I think it is... Um, the leader's opportunity, not just responsibility, but opportunity to find what are the degrees of freedom within that framework. So look, the the easiest framework that we need to define is our North Star. What are we all mm-hmm. trying to achieve? If we are clear in that mission and vision and we are specific in what that looks like and we are data-driven so we know tangibly if we have achieved that goal, that's the North Star. And then imagine all of our teams look different. Some of us are in rowboats of three people. Others may be in massive ships of hundreds of people. But if all of these boats that function differently, some are manual, some are motorized, but we're all aimed toward that North Star, that lighthouse, then we might find different ways there. Some might be drifting off in the waves a little bit more, and maybe that's okay. And others are just chugging straight toward it. But the, the organization is unified enough that we're aiming toward the same goal, but there's freedom in the framework in the how. So, Emily, and you know, and so this is also in how we we coach um, collectively, how we coach um, leaders. And so, when you say there are some that are in robots of three, two or threes, and there are some that are on on, on massive ships of hundred, how do you inculcate, or rather, how do you choose who gets to be in the boat of the three? Who gets to be on the on the ship of hundred, and and do those people cross over based on some 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 uh, sense to the whole thing, or um, is it generally how people pick and choose on on what sort of assignments they like to work on? Let's say at Wonderman right now. I think uh, <laughs> the conversation is getting a little ethereal. <laughs> if I bring it back down to to the practical, I think I think people work differently. And our job as leaders is to unlock the greatest potential in each person and give enough freedom 
to how they operate. You know, I think more broadly, teams structure differently based on their discipline or their function, and that's natural. So some people work in smaller teams because maybe uh, we we unlock more modularity, and then other people by function are part of a bigger group. You know, I work at Winderman Thompson, and we are part of a big organization. And then we are part of WPP, which is an even bigger organization. Bigger organization. With yeah. any of those types of companies, and I'd say that's not very different than Procter & Gamble, though it's on the client side versus the agency side. The reality is we're all within some sort of a matrix. We all have opportunities to roll very quickly. We all have opportunities to be part of something much bigger. And each of those things comes with pros and cons. When you're in a small team rowing, you might get more tired. When you're in a bigger ship, you might benefit from the momentum a little bit more, but maybe you're a little more constrained in how much an individual can contribute. I think, you know, there are times and by project, there are times by our individual role, by the person we work for and by the client that we're engaging with, that all of this will change. So I think maybe the most important answer to your question, Saqib, is it, it depends on where you are at this point in time and remember that it might change tomorrow. Too often we look at our today's snapshot and think, well, I don't want to do this in five years. I better change jobs or, oh, I really don't like today. I don't want to do tomorrow. But so much of this really is within our gift. And so much of what we're doing is something that is very fluid. It changes. And, right. and if we exercise a degree of agility and look at that longer term and think, okay, what are my degrees of freedom? What choices can I make? What desires ought I to voice so that people know where I want to head? And, and a lot of those changes can happen in a very productive, healthy way versus, you know, sometimes you do see people just jumping out of the ship and saying, don't like this. And it's such a shame because there's still yeah. so much opportunity. That's right, and you know what? We'll we'll uh, we'll try and switch gears a bit. Uh, we've been we've been quite a bit on the business side. Um, <laughs> we do want to get on the on the on the Emily uh, and the leadership side. So, Emily, let me let me ask you this. Um, you know, you've had you've had a storied, very successful career, and and you've had such amazing, diverse experiences. And and back to how you were saying, it's all it was all based on the curiosity. But let me ask you: if if everything you know today right let's say you had the benefit of the wisdom of all of these years but you were starting your career would you have would you now go ahead and take exactly the same path or would you make some changes along the way i think there's one thing i would be proud of and there's one thing maybe i would change so the thing that i would be proud of and you know especially i'll speak as an asian woman we're not raised to be proud of ourselves or to, to speak with this kind of language or vocabulary and it's something I've been teaching my daughter since she was born. Every night we end the day with an HPG, a high, a proud, and a gratitude, because I think it's important to figure out what it is that was a great part of the day. What am I grateful for? And importantly, how can I articulate something that I'm proud of myself? And not to be prideful, but to recognize things that we're good at. And, you know, right. a couple of years ago, I took a year pause with my family's blessing and partnership, and I decided to write a book. I think that took a degree of courage it was non-traditional. It was at a time when I was already in the C-suite, um, but I feel like it was the right thing to do because it was a passion project and I really wanted to see it done. And sometimes when something sort of tugs at our heart and our brain and our soul, we should maybe be a little non-traditional and not worry too much about what the world thinks and say, this is something that I think I'm uniquely equipped to do and I wanna give it a period of time to do. And I, you know, that was something that I think went really well. And I would encourage others, if you feel that tug, 
don't worry about the linear model that we are raised within or that society kind of puts upon us. Do what you feel you were created to do uniquely. And if you have passion for it, success comes in many different shapes and sizes. Sure. Success is following through with that and seeing what happens. So that's something I, I would definitely do again. The thing that I have learned increasingly, even in the last two or three years, it's really been something that's landed and, and I'm sitting with it a lot is this idea of grace. I would give myself a lot more grace. You know, the first time I failed, uh, I'm not exaggerating to say I bought a black journal, literally just black with with nothing on it. And I called it my calamity journal. It was very overdramatic. And I wrote in it like, I failed. I did this terrible thing. What kind of a human being am I? And I went all the way down very quickly to questioning my self-worth and why am I good at anything? And why did anybody ever trust me with a job? My goodness, it sounds so over the top, but that's how we start our lives when we're young. I think remembering we're not always going to be at our best. We will all fail. I wish somebody had told me that. I don't I don't think I had that choice growing up. If we have that mindset, then we're more prepared to pick up and begin more intelligently and with more wisdom. And I think the, the other part, oh, go ahead. And then I'll go to the other part. No, no, no. I, I, you know, I just wanted to reinforce that because <clears throat> back to, it's also good for what we, if we start forgiving ourselves and show more grace, mm-hmm. we'll all, to do that for everyone around us. That was my right. second half. Exactly. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Because because I think we we generally like to project whatever we do for ourselves on everyone around us. Yeah. And if we keep saying that I can't fail, then that's the sort of vibe we even bring into yeah. as a leader where we say others can't fail either. Yeah. Right? So I do think I do think that's that's a that's a really um that's a very insightful thing. Um for from for for you to have picked up, but you wanted to say something more, and I, I interrupted you. Sorry, what was the? Do you want to continue your thought? Very consistent thought, which is um, if we extend more grace to ourselves and remember that we will fail, it's just remember that others are going through the same journey. You know, I remember I probably did exactly what you just said, which is project this idea of a very high standard and we can't fail, but that's not realistic, and you're just putting so much perhaps unnecessary pressure on the situation and on people. I also think, frankly, I judged people too quickly and too harshly. You know, here's a very tangible example. I was recently asked to give a reference on somebody who, when I worked with them, I didn't have a particularly high opinion. And frankly, maybe five, 10 years ago, I would have shared that. But now I refrained and I said, you know, it's been a couple of years. I don't know. Because, because maybe somebody wasn't at their best. That doesn't mean they're not a great human or not fit for this new job. Gosh, I think about when I was at my worst and if people judged me ongoing or gave reference checks on me based on that moment in time with everything that was going on in my life, then gosh, I I wouldn't have been set up for success either. So I just think it's sort of extending grace all around. That's great. And and what a great way to put it. Emily, we do want to switch the the conversation over to your book for uh, for a bit because uh, believe it or not, um, I went ahead and um, I, I cannot claim that I have gone ahead and read it all. I've read, uh, I'm, I'm actually, you know what? I did go ahead and read almost, uh, I was, I'm more than a quarter way through because as I was preparing for this interview, I did one. But what I would, I would, I would love to have from you would be what are the, what are the tips and notes version of uh, what, what motivated you to, to write that book on social legacy? And, and what's the project all about? Because you now have a website, there's, there's a bit more to it. So um, let our listeners know a bit more about Social Legacy. 
you know, it evolved as well uh, in line with the conversation we've had today. It started off with, we've had 17 vulnerable children and orphans living in our spare room over the last 20 plus years. And I wanted to tell their stories in part because they're so inspiring and I want to share what's really driven and fueled me. Second, I think there's so much about social justice all over the world that we may not be aware of. And I thought that educational element would also be helpful. But what very quickly happened is it took on a life of its own and it became less about our own stories. The spare room has become instead a euphemism about what it is that each of us is uniquely positioned to do with this one precious life. And I think so I keep initially I was thinking about people in my life stage in my late 40s. Gosh, you get to a point where you're like, hey, I have the title. Hey, I have the family structure, the house. Now what? But but actually, the younger generation is so much ahead of us. They're asking the questions before they enter the workforce. They're saying, what do I want my life to be about? What do I want to invest my time in? And what's important to me in the long term? These weren't questions I asked when I was in my 20s, and I find it very inspiring. So the spare room is really about social legacy, to your point. And it is, what is your unique offer, that combination of assets, capabilities, experience that you uniquely possess? What is your offense? Or you might even define it more broadly as your opportunity. What is the thing in the world that really draws you, calls to you, that you want to go do something about? The intersection of your offer and your offense is what I'm calling your social legacy, sort of the intersection of the Venn diagram, if you will. And everybody is defined and created, I believe, to create a social legacy and to leave this place better than we found it, which is legacy. Social simply defines the space in which we want to have that impact. Very nice. You know, this is this is we're almost nearing our time, uh, and I know your time's just as valuable. Uh, but before we let you go, if I was to ask you, what is some of the advice? Because there are there are so many amazing leaders across the world, but each one of us learns from the other, right? So, yeah. if I was to ask you, what is what is one piece of advice that you'd give other leaders in your situation? What would that be? Maybe it's a recap of what we just talked about. The first one is, I don't know that I was often encouraged to think creatively, but thinking with ingenuity is finding solutions to problems that I have defined and set my mind against solving in ways that should exist but don't. Two, doing it together, learning as you go. And then maybe three, remembering that we're all evolving along the way. Very cool. You know, uh, it's funny, Emily, I generally use this last time to summarize a conversation. Oh. The way you, the, the way you've done it, I'm not even going to attempt because you've done it perfectly well. Um, but thank you so much, uh, Emily. This has been a, a great conversation. Uh, it, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure having you on the show. Um, I'm sure our listeners would like to hear more from you. We'll, we'll tag you in our show notes. Um, and who knows, we might even ask you to come back and, and, uh, and be a guest again at some point in time with some specific other directions that we might be going into. Thanks, Sakeep. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to reconnect with you. And definitely, I think at this stage in my life, it is more about contributing to others and seeing others be successful. So do reach out to me at social-legacy.com. And I love engaging on these conversations. Thank you all once again for tuning in. You can find all Say Hi to the Future podcast series on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. The Say Hi to the Future podcast series is produced by Sonia Romero, edited by Matt Miller, and special effects by Edward Baskets. Please leave us your thoughts and let us know if there's a guest you want us to have a conversation with.